0: issue
1: for
2: all women. Hello there, welcome to episode 10 of the standard issue pod Zine. I'm Mickey Noonan and giving stuff the benefit of the doubt isn't working for me, so I've decided to start giving, not giving the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of the doubt. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Levy, and I've never cleaned my oven. And I'm Jen Offord and I've forgotten how to tie shoelaces. Later on, Kiri Pritchard-McLean and Rachel Fairburn tell us all about serial killers, as Hannah and I chat to them about their excellent podcast, All Killer, No Filler. Deborah Jane Appleby talks about women and gaming. I caught up with Judy Murray to chat progress in women's tennis, the US Open, and raising a world champion. Jen Brister shares one of your favourite pieces from the archives as she revisits the caravan holiday from hell. And our Sarah Milliken is answering another one of your very important life questions. And I do Disney's Pocahontas.
3: Sweet baby Jesus.
2: But first, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Stink. Bush
4: Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we round up the occasions over the last week where Jacob Rees Morg and other assorted dickwads made us want to scream into a sheet cake. White House puppet
3: master and spam faced white supremacist Steve Bannon. Is the latest big name to leave the Trump administration after being fired. Opinion rages as to why the sacking of the man often credited with securing Trump's victory has happened now. And no, I don't mean Putin. Some commentators have seen it as an attempt to make the White House seem less racist, although this could also have been achieved by it being less racist. Others believe it's the culmination of a long-running power struggle between Bannon and the man laughably referred to as the President of America. And yet others, although to be honest, this is probably just me, think, given the state of that reanimated corpse he was living in, eight months was probably the deadline the devil had given him before he had to return to the seventh circle of hell to run its newsletter, Breitbart News. If you're listening, Steve, and you think I'm being too hard on you, may I remind you of the time you said the media should be, and I quote, embarrassed and humiliated and shut its mouth, something I'm guessing you recycle from your wedding vows. So, you know, I'm enjoying the Schadenfreude, which means... oh no, wait, I'm pretty sure you speak German.
2: Steve Bannon's face always reminds me of that quote from Roald Dahl's The Twits about what happens to a person's looks when that person has ugly thoughts. I'm working for memory, but I'm fairly sure it goes, You're a massive fucking wanker and it shows. You're a massive fucking wanker and it shows. I mean, clearly I'm paraphrasing.
4: Bannon does look like he's been sleeping in a car park for the last six months. He's now returned to Breitbart, where he recently threatened
3: to go nuclear on Ivanka and her husband Jared Kushner, who he dislikes as they are White House Democrats, which may or may not be code for Jews. No news
2: on his other plans,
3: which may or may not include trying to suck his own cock.
2: I'm guessing may. Talking of trying to suck your own cock, the events in Charlottesville led OKCupid to kick human shit swamp Christopher Cantwell off the site. I mean, some lucky lass is surely missing out on an absolute catch. Friday nights screaming about Jews, Saturday afternoons admiring his arsenal, Sunday barbecues. Cantwell's also very in touch with his emotions. The proud white supremacist filmed himself weepily explaining just how terrified he was, having armed himself to the teeth and encouraged his fellow neo-Nazis to be racist and aggressive as fuck, that there was a warrant out for his arrest. Will no one think of the person behind the fascism? No, footface, we won't. Women
4: hoping to meet someone the diametric opposite of cunt Zoe Cantwell could do worse than visit London's pop-up cocktail joint, the Twomp Bar. Founded by Annie Hughes and Katie McGee, the bar in Bethnal Green is donating 50p from every cocktail sold to charities representing the numerous groups fucked over by Donald J. So every time you buy a Moscow was responsible for the election mule, Mary Stokes and the like get some cold
2: hard cash. Finally, some responsible drinking we can get behind. Over on this side of the fetid pond, some bright spark at the Telegraph decided the following headline made sense. Britain fighting to save Ireland from EU imposed hard border. Which actually translates as Britain fighting to save Ireland from Britain fighting. Man, I bet the Irish had chuffed our Britain on their side. It's always worked out so well in the past. And here Britain is fighting to clean up the massive shit it did last June by smearing it all over the furniture and then complaining it's slippy and it's sticky and it smells bad and it didn't mean to get it on that border. Big Ben's bombs have fallen silent for the first time
4: since, oh, 2007? And before that, between 1983 and 1985? And if that wasn't bad enough, they're turning a fucking light off as well. I blame the EU. I don't. Despite the relative regularity of the silencing of the iconic bell, some people were unhappy with the move, which is happening to protect workers who are carrying out essential maintenance on Elizabeth Tower to stop it crumbling into the Thames. Prime Minister May was one of those people claiming it can't be right that the bell won't sound regularly until 2021, when the maintenance works are due to be completed. Still, in fairness, it's not the first time Mrs May's objected to protecting workers' rights. Nonetheless, a compromise was struck to, we presume, appease tourists for the bell to continue to mark important events such as New Year's Eve. Tory MPs,
3: including, you've guessed it, Jacob Rees-Mogg, are up in arms that Big Ben won't be able to do its massive bongs as we crash out of Europe in 2019. Never mind, I'm sure we'll all be doing massive bongs on that night.
2: Maybe instead of bombs they could just use a massive clang every time the government fucks it. I reckon we'll be hearing the echoes of those for at least another decade. In business news, a state-backed fund in Singapore has
3: put in a bid to buy Unilever's spread brands. Sky News reported that the deal would include the sale of Flora and I Can't Believe It's Not Butter, although it's not called that anymore, of course, after its current owners decided to change its name to I Can't Believe It's So Good For Everything, which they believe better reflects the brand. I eagerly await more accurate rebrands of its other big sellers. Litton's is just crying out to be renamed. I can't believe these were the only tea
4: bags left in the shop. Online hate crimes should be treated with the same severity as face-to-face abuse the Crown Prosecution Service has advised courts in England and Wales. And for the first time ever the new guidance makes specific provision for bisexual victims. Twats will be twats and of course we know there's a bunch of them on the internet. And not just those Games Workshop enthusiasts coming with the rape bans. According to Alison Saunders, Director of Public Prosecutions, recent events in the US have proven where online abuse can lead to if not dealt with appropriately. A massive 15,000 prosecutions were made against perpetrators of hate crime in 2015-16, with a third of those convicted receiving tougher sentences because of the classification of the incident as hate-related. And yet, Katie Hopkins is still saying whatever the fuck she likes on Twitter. Go figure.
3: Clark's, as in the shoe retailer, has responded to a recent Ferrari about the style slash quality slash dumb as fuck names of its footwear for girls with the announcement it would scrap boys' and girls' shoe areas in some of its stores and arrange its displays by story rather than by gender. The move comes after parents and campaigners complained about its frankly ludicrous sex issues for girls, which they said were not suited for outdoor or strenuous activities. And, as an aside, we're called Dolly Babe, which is better suited as a name for a sex bot, if you ask me. Whether the gender-neutral displays will do anything to improve the robustness of girls' shoes remain to be seen. Otherwise, the story they are organised to tell might be my kid shattered her ankle trying to get on a climbing frame. More
2: news next week.
5: Well, you have equal pay, but,
2: you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the Week. Bad news, birds. Even the robots are sexist. Computer science researchers in Virginia noticed that machines taught by photographs learn a sexist view of women. Two prominent research image collections used to train various bits of tech kit contain predictable depictions of the sexes, with women more likely to be cooking and cleaning while men are hunting, shooting and sporting. What's more, the software trained on these data sets didn't just mirror the sexism, but amplified it. Why does it matter? Imagine your future housebot. Let's call it Jeeves, scooting into the kitchen where you, and please forgive the heteronormative setup needed to prove the point, and your fella are chilling out. Cheeky Jeeves only offers a bloke a beer and to help you wash up. Fuck that shit. Fetch me a fucking beer, Jeeves. A bonus bit of sexism for you this week because we know how to
4: treat you, right? It comes almost, of course, from the Daily Mail. Sorry, I mean the Mail Online. Which spotted that Leo Michelle had worn the same outfit twice in two weeks. Twice! Anyone ever spotted the male comment on a man wearing the same thing twice? Guess what guys, sometimes women wear the same thing twice and they don't even wash them all the time as the smell of the jeans I'm currently wearing will testify.
5: Hello, my name's Jen Brister. I'm a stand-up comedian. Strictly speaking, holidays should be fun. And what could be more fun than going away with four children? It means that even if three of them are having a good time One of them will be kicking off, making every second of every hour utterly unbearable for two whole weeks. Kids, eh? Personally, I loved family holidays. It was an opportunity for my brothers and I to verbally and physically abuse each other in an entirely new environment. Looking back at the photos, I can see that my mum may not have shared our enthusiasm. In fact, she looks depressed in 88.86% of all our holiday snaps. Yes, I did make that statistic up. What of it? I'm guessing that when you have four kids, wherever you go is just geography. You can't leave the magic of motherhood behind. Who cares if the sun is shining if your children have decided to sing We wanna be Smith's crisps at the top of their lungs in a camper van for four hours without stopping for breath? People have murdered for less. To this day, I will never understand why my father decided to uproot his family from what was clearly an amazing holiday in France. We were supposed to stay on our static caravan site for two weeks but I think my dad must have looked at his kids running freely through the fields making new friends and hiking down to the nearest beach every day and thought I know what will make this even more fun. Forcing four children under the age of 11 to drive around in a camper van for four days during a heat wave. Happy days. I don't remember that much about those four days other than the constant feeling of car sickness, my brother Alex's insistence on repeating unintelligible phrases over and over again and the sun burning a hole in my forehead. The only other highlight of this driving marathon was on the final day when the entire family dined out on Moules marinieres. That's right, muscles in double cream can you imagine such decadence it was a gastronomic delight we loved mules. we loved cream this was moules and cream essentially two of the richest foodstuffs brought together by the french to test the digestive mettle of any johnny foreigner my brothers and i thought it was the best thing we'd ever tasted more moules we cried my parents happily obliged. I can only imagine that the novelty of experiencing momentary silence while we ate was too good to pass up. So my dad, with all the optimistic enthusiasm of a man enjoying the sound of his own breathing, bought us another round of maul. What could possibly go wrong? The first thing that went wrong was when my father couldn't find a and b or campsite for us to stay that night. This meant that the six of us would have to sleep in the camper van together. My father, as usual, was completely unfazed by this realisation. Who needs a campsite, for heaven's sake? We have everything we could possibly need inside the camper van. Apart from running water, a toilet, a stove that worked, beds. Still, it was going to be an adventure. Finally, my father parks the van in what feels like the middle of nowhere. My mother by now is freaking out. I can tell this is the case because she is actually freaking out. This involves shouting at my father and trying to quash the rising hysteria while helping my youngest brother, Stephen, change into his flumps pyjamas. Looking back at this time, I can honestly say that had I been in my mum's shoes, I would have left that night, just slipped out the door. Hey, done my bit, but this shit isn't funny anymore. I need some time out, people. But my mum didn't leave. She stayed in the camper with her family and slept on the back seat with my skinny brother, Greg, huddled next to her for warmth. Fast forward three hours and I'm woken by a very loud growling in my stomach. As I struggle to sit up on my narrow bunk, I can hear Greg's strained whisper. Dad! Dad! I need the loo! I feel the van rock as my father fidgets in the front seat where he is sat with a blanket on his lap, attempting to sleep. ugh oh, oh, son! Just go out the window! Needless to say, Greg obliges before slipping back into his makeshift bed with Mum. Another twenty minutes pass and the growling in my stomach has turned into a very immediate feeling. I can feel sweat forming on my top lip, and I know I have very little time before something extremely bad happens. Dad! Dad, I have to go to the loo. (laughs) I have have to go now. Hearing the urgency in my voice, my father gets up and opens the van door. Oh, just go behind a bush or something, he mutters. My brother Stephen is now also awake and looking at me with a face that is screaming, Help! Jen, I need to go too. My dad, delirious with exhaustion, points randomly to a dark corner about 100 feet away. Go go for a wee there. What my father has failed to register is that neither Stephen nor I need a number one. What is stirring in my bowels right now is very much in number two territory. It may come out in one consistency, but a number one it isn't. Stephen and I find ourselves in the front garden of what looks like a cottage. In the corner of this cottage is a dark, shadowy spot. I rush towards it, pulling my pyjama bottoms down just in time before I begin a very thorough evacuation of my insides. Meanwhile, Stephen, unable to wait for me to finish, has squatted down where he stands and, well, to put it bluntly, shits himself empty. The next morning, I'm awoken abruptly by the sound of the van door opening and my father shouting, Christ almighty, it stinks in here! He's right. The smell is enough to make your eyes water. I step out of the van and walk round to where Alex is doubled over laughing. Oh, the smell is even worse outside. I look at the van and see a trail of wet, sticky poo starting from a very small window and working its way down the side of the van. It appears that Greg had wedged his tiny bottom out of the window and squitted down the side of the van before crawling back into bed with Mum. My dad, for some reason, thinks this is the time to make a common sense appeal to Greg. Why did, you, why did you poo out of the window, son? You told me to, Dad. The humour surrounding Greg's accident subsides rapidly as we realise that my father hasn't parked in a field or even down a country lane. No, my father has parked our maroon VW camper van in the middle of a village square. The people of this sleepy French village are now very much awake and staring at us with a mixture of incredulity and disgust. We are a family covered in poo, standing next to a van, covered in poo. Meanwhile, my father is calmly collecting water from the village pump and dousing the van with it. My parents are seemingly oblivious to the growing number of French locals who have gathered nearby and are holding handkerchiefs to their faces whilst trying not to dry I'm nine years old and the realisation of exactly what is happening has come crashing down on my mortified head. I'll never forget the embarrassment of having to strip down to my underwear listening to my mother shouting, Oh, stand under the tap, Jennifer. You have poo on your leg. Oh my God, we are not going back in the van covered in poo. I don't think I knew what real shame felt like till I had to stand in my underpants covered in poo listening to my mother shout her own personal humiliating commentary. I'm going to have to throw your pyjamas in a bin. They stink! While a group of French villagers looked on in disbelief. Needless to say, we left the village that morning without even stopping for a croissant. The only thing I remember is the elderly lady incandescent with rage and shouting abuse at my father while he tried to navigate the van through the busy village square. To be fair, her fury was more than justified. After waking early that morning, she had opened her door to discover a steaming or liquid turd on her doorstep, and another one next to her garden pond. I can still hear my mother's words: "Oh my God! But why did you pour on someone's doorstep? I just don't understand." Stephen and I bowed our heads in shame.
6: Hello. Deborah Jane Appleby here, co-host of Strong Female Leads podcast and full-on video game nut. As we're in the midst of the nerdtastic convention season with several big video game expos coming our way, the lovely ladies of Standard Issue asked me to say a few words about the state of the industry as we see it specifically as it pertains to our target audience. There's a great misconception that women and girls don't play and don't enjoy video games. You pretty much only ever see them marketed to boys, and the grown-up equivalent of boys, the man-boy. Even games that are specifically aimed at girls are very much a stereotype. You know, they encompass shopping, fashion, cooking, romance, Barbie, girl-related TV and toy tie-ins. And also at the upcoming conventions and shows, each booth will still have its models, colloquially known as booth babes, posing and demonstrating products. There's nothing wrong with that. This is the standard marketing thing, especially in an industry. The perception of the audience is very male dominated, although thankfully these days they are a little bit more appropriately dressed and a hell of a lot more looked after after several incidents of of harassment over the last few years at conventions. The problem with games and their perception is just that. It's perception. To the money men, it's boys and men that will spend money on video games. And so that's where the focus goes when it comes to the development of and the marketing of video games. Statistics, however, show that women make up half of all players' of video games, which is shocking given that they only make up half of the population. So why don't all of these women identify as gamers? Why will the halls of the NEC this month be thronged with young lads and only a handful of girls, mainly cosplayers, and even less will be seen as developers and publishers? If I were to ask you if you were a gamer, uh, what would your response be? If you're a young woman on her way to work listening to this, it would probably be no. But you likely had to pause the drop three game or the Angry Bird style physics game or Clash of Lords and Ladies or Bejeweledville style game that you were playing on your phone to think about it. In a recent survey, although only 2% of female respondents said they played sports games, and only 4% tactical shooters, things like Call of Duty, 48% of the responders were women. The vast majority of them played what we would call casual games. You are seen as a casual gamer, and you'd think there wouldn't be a problem with that. But marketing-wise, perception-wise, to be a real gamer, you have to spend... 16 hours a day in a dark room that smells of nothing but red bull sweat and your own despair playing fifa or call of duty or counter-strike or league of legends because then you're hardcore and that's what really matters to a real gamer casual doesn't count in fact it's leveled at other players as an insult. It's the online equivalent of schoolboys stealing each other's bags and calling each other gay. The video game industry is big. It's a hundred billion dollars big. And that doesn't even begin to include things like online bingo, which, let's face it, is still a video game. Online poker and online video are no different from playing any other video game. But women are still underrepresented in all aspects of this industry, which is not surprising. It's a new industry. It's a male-dominated industry, like nearly all industries are. But then again, they're underrepresented in Hollywood and the TV industries, which are way more mature than the video game industry. So obviously, it's got a long way to go. The women face the same problems as they do in any science, tech, engineering, maths-related area. There's lots of harassment. There's massive pay gaps. They're undervalued. They're overlooked. Girls get talked out of even getting into coding and game design and technology as soon as they hit their teens. And then we're told, well, girls aren't interested in it after they've been brow beaten out of it by the media and fathers and teachers. And there's the representation that women see in games themselves, from the role-playing options where your your female version of the fully armoured knight goes into battle wearing nothing but a steel bikini and stiletto boots, or the Quite frankly, disturbing hentai style schoolgirl porn stars you get in Street Fighter games. Only last month, ESPN required of a player in a live Street Fighter V finals at EVO 2017 to change the outfit of the character Kami because the clothes the character was wearing did not meet their broadcast standards. Pressure will start to come from companies who want your money and because you play video games even though you don't identify yourself as a gamer your money will make a difference in the market so if you want to have more representation in games if if you as a woman want to have more women making games then you need to seek out the women that are making games on kickstarter and indiegogo and small indie projects and things like that and support their games. We as a community need to shout for the kind of games that we want and vote with our wallets. And maybe then women that play games will get respect from the marketing and the money people, which will allow women who make games to get more work and respect in the industry itself. That's my take on where women in video games are at this moment in time. If you want any more of the same, don't forget Strong Female Leads, the sister podcast to Standard Issue, is available on iTunes and SoundCloud every other Thursday.
3: We're here at the Edinburgh Festival and we're joined by comedians Kimmy Pritchard-McLean and Rachel Feather. And we're here to talk about their podcast, All Killer, No Filler.
7: Hi guys. Hi. Hi. We weren't sure if we were going to say hi then, did we? Yeah, we still looked at each other like... Yeah, there's a weird stale mate. Do we say hello? Are you going to say it? I suppose you're wondering why I brought you all here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're actually doing a live All Killer, No Filler this afternoon. We're keeping it local,
7: aren't we? We are, Birkenhair. I didn't know much about them. In fact, I thought they were just grave
2: robbers. I didn't realise they were murderers as well.
7: I had a really nice time finding
2: out about it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about All Killer No Filler, the podcast. What and why?
7: It's
8: about serial killers. I'm very strict on that. Sometimes mm-hmm. people suggest a spree killer uh, or Charles Manson, who's not actually a serial killer, but it's got to be a serial killer, right?
2: And we did can you define what a serial killer is, just for anyone who might not have killed? Four, four or more murders with a cooling
8: off period. Okay. So are the
7: Ipswich
3: murders serial killing because they were all quite tightly packed together
7: stuff like that strays into spree yeah it it? does but i mean if there is a decent like of a few days because it's a classic spree is opening fire on a crowded canteen in america yeah some of them like serial killers like btk will start with a spree where they kill Mm. the family in a night and there'll be a cooling off and then i think he killed another six five or six wasn't it so i would say that that was yeah that's a serial killer that's just someone who's i mean efficient I mean, that's probably not the right word, isn't <laughs> it? but we're in there, there now, out, aren't we? <laughs>
8: <laughs> we started it because we were gigging on the circuit, and people kept saying to us because we'd not met. Because we're Kira women, and, and we're and not allowed to gig together. Yeah, we're not allowed to gig
7: together. Unless we're raising money for something. <laughs> that's
2: true. We got special permission to get four women in the room. Together and, together.
7: <laughs> and now there'll be no sunshine for three days. <laughs> that exactly. And
8: people kept saying, "Oh, you should, you should meet Kira. You can talk about serial killers." And luckily, we live across the road from each other.
7: Which will make Uh, us easier to off. Which will, yeah. One of those (laughs) weirdo sisters. To it is like right. It's time to take them down. When the spree happens. Yeah.
8: (laughs) And then we just decided to do an episode, and it come rather popular which we're quite surprised about yeah because we didn't think so many people would start listening to it
7: no we didn't know each other very well I no. think you can probably tell if you listen
8: to the early ones you, I don't think we're sure of each other's boundaries yeah. yeah so I think we're still sort of testing
2: how far when did yeah. you discover yeah. that neither of you had boundaries my <laughs> so, like
7: second episode
5: yeah I think it's episode two
8: so how many of you done are you at risk of running out of serial killers everyone always asks that but as long as there's uh, men in the world we'll never
7: (laughs) 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 we're up to 30 is it 34? yeah we try and mix it up and we try and do a mixture of couples women and men uh, niche ones and big famous ones and if it's a huge one Like, we're about to do another three-parter. So we did the three-parter on Fred and Rose. Oh, that was great. It was really Mm -hmm. fascinating. Do you know what, though? It was exhausting. Like, by the end, you said... Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? No, please do. do. (laughs) We got to the third episode, and we'd been talking about them and thinking about them for so long, and you were like fucking sick of these cunts now and it was like it was a week before christmas
5: yeah. as well which you really
7: don't want it was dead depressing i mean it's depressing anyway but
8: because it was christmas you'd be sort of making notes by it and christmas tree between <laughs> this
7: is horrible it's relentlessly yeah. grim as well something about british ones are always just shittier and sadder and grimmer aren't yeah, they yeah. is
3: it something you've always been interested in
7: i've always been interested in
8: macabre things so when I was really little, my granddad he used to give me this book called Horrible Murder. And it was all illustrated police news stories. And I couldn't read it, but I used to look at all the pictures. So they'd be like, there's a skeleton on the front chopping someone's head off. And there's all these horrible pictures in it. When I was about five, he used to sort of say, oh, there you go. That'll keep you quiet. He to, <laughs> forever. love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah forever. <laughs> Carry it around the house and absolutely loved looking at all the pictures. But when I was at school and one of my teachers... Used to make us write what had happened over the weekend and talk, write a news story as well. The news story she picked was Fred and Rose West. So weird. Isn't in it? the little oh, we went to, we went to Blackpool. We had a lovely time. Fred and Rose West have been arrested because, and then it was it was like they found this many bodies and they also found one in the chimney. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah, my mum still got the the book
7: somewhere. The where <laughs> the that's was trying to get out. Then I I became obsessed with it. Then I was as a kid loved scaring myself so. I remember I used to have this copy of Hound of the Baskervilles, which is my favourite, and there was a picture in the middle of it of the Hound, and I just remember being terrified of it. I can still see what it (laughs) looks like now, and just be scaring myself to sleep. When I'd be like pottering around my room doing stuff, I'd have like books on tape playing, and it was religiously, it was Dracula, Frankenstein, and there was these Hitchcock novels for kids called The Three Investigators, and they were absolutely banging and they were all quite scary so I would just have those i like, just scare myself to sleep basically and it was I think Ed Gein who isn't technically yeah. serial killers who I heard about first I was like what? and that came through films that, hearing that Psycho and Science of the Lambs and Texas Chainsaw Massacre was influenced by him and then it's just a real rabbit hole isn't it <laughs> once you're, yeah. you're
8: into that stuff I, I don't ever watch anything light hearted no I can't do it for me even if I think oh I'll just put some on it it's always got to be like know a 9-11 conspiracy documentary yeah, yeah. or just something really heavy going yeah i can't watch rom-coms i can't watch anything that's fun yeah it, it doesn't do anything for me no it doesn't it's no. same here
7: actually it sort of leaves me cold i've got a sketchbook called to to a gift shop when we write write in inverted commas what we'll do <laughs> is uh we'll cook dinner and then we'll sit down and watch a horror film and then afterwards we'll chat and some you know 50% of the time an idea will come out of that but that's my idea of relaxing is scaring myself into a Mm. stupor
2: it's very visceral isn't it and I suppose it's a similar thing with comedy, comedy and horror to me really really clever, I'm not a horror fan because it scares me too much (laughs) but they're very clever in that it's natural physical reaction you get you don't get from very much else and horror films and comedy films do tend to get ignored at Oscars and stuff and yeah. I'm like they're the ones that actually yeah. make people feel and, and remember yeah. stuff.
3: As I'm about to say this I kind of worry that it might just be me but I actually think there is cross pollination between the two. You were talking about the West and I, I remember watching the dramatisation of it uh, with Dominic West as Fred West. Uh, Too tall to play and him, and but Mo- Monica, Monica Dolan <laughs> who was fantastic as Rose West and there are a couple of things in that that really made me laugh and the next day I went to work and everyone was talking about it and bearing in mind I was working at a newspaper so journalists are cynical and mm-hmm. dark and I was like, you yeah, know man, it was really funny and everyone looked <laughs> at me like, what? <laughs> so there's a couple of bits where he was explaining and apparently a lot of it came from actual things he said about how Rose couldn't possibly be involved because she had gone to the supermarket and they said she had time for that and he went, oh no, it's a fair old walk-up test <laughs> <laughs> it's like... It's really funny yeah. I shouldn't be laughing because also
7: Fred West got like the most like comic of Gloucester yeah. accent yeah. as well and when he does that that you can obviously hear the transcripts of him when he goes and I said to myself you've done it you've killed three and they go three, and they go, three and went two <laughs> <And he's> like, <laughs> no no because <laughs> he's like such an idiot so there is funny stuff and it's that release again it's that good comedy shows you get big laughs from sometimes amping up attention and i mm. i do think they're really really similar and all the comedy i really love is, is skirts around that dark stuff i think did you have you seen get out yes mm. it's brilliant it, it's written by a comic and it's about race and it's, it's really fantastic and that just you know that that's not ever going to be on anyone's list
2: going back to the podcast did you get get more of a reaction than you were expecting were more people into serial killers than you realized
7: no i think i knew everyone thought it was yeah. the, it was their what, what would you say like guilt guilty pleasure i guess <laughs> so many people are like oh yeah i love true crime yeah love, it's fascinating because podcast is in well you'll know this is it's such an exciting world because you don't have producers or commissioners making calls what you have is pure content and then the audience decides what yeah. they want mm-hmm. yeah. and what the audience want is Stuff about football and true crime. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what the world's been asking for. <laughs> uh, on feminism. Those are the, the three basically genres that do well. And I think we knew, loads of people are into this. Yeah. So we didn't realise it was going to take off like it did. We it, knew I mean, loads it's...
8: of comics, fellow comics are into... Because like if you say you're interested in serial killers, not in, not in, interested in, that's the correct phrase, isn't it? They will go, oh, my favourite's this yeah. one. Yeah. Or I'm interested in, in that one. And even... People in general always want to volunteer a crime that they might be interested in. Yeah, definitely. I think everyone's got the, the particular one that is their favourite. Who's your favourite? It's well, Fred and Rose West. But I have to say after we did the three-parter I did have to take a break from it. <laughs> yeah. take a break is exactly the right
7: phrase because they would both be in that magazine they would definitely, definitely be in that <laughs> I'm interested in the
8: Yorkshire Ripper I like the, the British ones I find them quite fascinating oh, yeah, Richard's a Patriot yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. but also uh, Dennis Raider BTK and uh,
7: Son of Sam BTK Bind, Torture, Kill Came up with his own nickname. He's an absolute yeah. ring piece. <laughs> He's so cringy. In fact, he has one of the things that upsets me the most that happened. He had got away with it for years and years and years, and then someone wrote an article in a newspaper and went, "Oh, this guy must be in prison or dead because the murder stopped." And because he's an arrogant man, he couldn't leave it. Mm-hmm. So he wrote to them and went, I'm still alive. And that's eventually how he got traced through various things. But what he had planned to do, he had this desk where he used to keep all the evidence that he called the, the Mother Lode. <laughs> so cringy. We call him the Alan Partridge yeah. of serial killer. And uh, in the Mother Lode, there was a DVD in there that was to be played at his funeral where he comes out as the BTK killer at his funeral well it's interesting isn't it
3: because the thing about serial killers is ultimately they want to be caught because you've achieved nothing if you haven't yeah. I mean with the exception maybe of Zodiac mm-hmm. and also
2: killing people is that an achievement? What yeah,
3: that but there is something in the psychology of wanting people to know what you have achieved, if even if sure your yeah, achievement not. is this hideous, yeah. hideous thing. Yeah.
2: yeah.
7: Well, that's why they keep clippings of themselves and why they write to the papers. Yeah. It's, it's very similar six. to being a stand up, really, isn't <laughs> it? <I'm just> Googling their own name. Yeah, they apparently there's sort of five or six different motivations. So some of it is. Purely financial Some of it's sexual One of them is Convenience Which I absolutely love but Some people are like Well my life would be easier yeah. If you weren't in it <laughs> Some of them It is for the notoriety And the grandeur yeah. but Some people literally Just want to keep their head down And not get caught I think ego is a huge, huge mm. part of it. it. It just depends what kind of mental illness, I guess, is manifesting, which one brings it to the fore. The gay Slayer at Colin yeah. Island, he killed five, yeah, I think and it was. he wanted to be caught. He literally was like, "I want to kill just enough so I'm a serial killer." Was it was into serial killers, so knew the system, knew how to not be traced, and then made enough mistakes to sort of hand himself in, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, because he wanted to be caught basically. He wanted that. He wanted his, his moment. There's a few who want that. Or there's a few I think would happily just keep doing it. Mm. Like, I don't think Shipman wanted to get caught. I think he got s- sloppy.
8: Oh, definitely. I think some of them do it because they like they enjoy reading the, the papers about them and they're, they're like, uh-huh. well, it's me, that. Yeah. I think that's enough for them. But then there's I think there's the other side of it where some of them do just want to be like, oh, can you come and catch me now so people yeah. can see
2: who I am. Okay, I'm going to test whether you'd be really good serial killers or not. Uh, you're both doing shows at the Fringe, very good shows. If you got the world's first six star review because you've done it so well, would you be able to keep quiet about it?
7: Ha, no. No? <laughs> no,
8: of course not. Look, I, I was chuffed the other day, because I, I don't read my reviews and I got four stars from something, and I was that pleased that my w- bedroom window was open and I gave the V's out of the window. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I was like, okay, come on! <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought, right, t- that's it now, Rachel, tone it down. You've had your moment. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's enough for me. And I, I think I'd be happy to take the praise for it. But I, w- I don't think I'd volunteer the information. Oh, sorry, the
2: second bit of that question is, um, would you ever actually kill a person? <laughs>
7: <laughs> no. Um, I, there
2: is someone in the world that I would happily kill. Really?
7: Yeah, yeah. Is it me? Other. No, it's not. No, there is someone that I think the world would be better off without. Oh. And it's not even like politically motivated. It's not like, oh, would you go back in time and shoot Hitler? Ooh. That's bad, isn't it? I would happily... If no, I thought I could get away with do that, I'd I Yeah, of course you do. Uh, it's not an ex or anything like that. I Look just, out it, in the papers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I know how hard it is to do it and not get but, away with... Also, I've recorded it on two podcasts now. <laughs> one for you guys, one for the BBC. And so I think if this... For everyone sort of knows who it is. If, it, if that person went missing... If, and it is a he. Uh, if that person <laughs> went missing, then it'd be like, all right, well, we've, we've got documented evidence that you were like, if I could just get away <laughs> with it. Yeah, well,
3: it's unusual, isn't it? Because the, the generally accepted idea in society is that women don't kill mm, mm. unless they have to it's generally a, a self defence or a I've, I've had it with this shit
8: mm. it's, it's interesting though because it's incredibly rare that a woman kills on her own yeah. usually it's with someone else or as a reaction to something apart from Joanna Dennehy
7: yeah, unless they're baby farmers or uh, angels of death, well, like, like, you know, munchhounds and stuff. Yeah. They, they don't really do that going out and killing people. Yeah, she, the, she's one of yeah, the Yeah,
8: she, I think she killed three, it was three men, wasn't mm. it, isn't it? They're a Victorian woman who kept ploughing
3: through her husbands and poisoning them. I think there's
7: a yeah, few. Yeah, they're all point, yeah, there's woman, a Woman, classic. Poison is classic for yeah. women because yeah. we are like oh we don't like poisoners it's
2: boring yeah <laughs> right. we're not, we're not keen on poisoners baby poisonous. farmers as well
7: boo yeah.
2: <laughs> but did Donna Hay was she a stabby
7: McShooter she, stabby wasn't she stabby. she's quite attractive in the sun because this is all in the last
1: year two Sometimes years, years. It's okay. <laughs> yeah well
7: like, they, they were everywhere two posting on social media you her with these huge knives and stuff Did you might have missed this no I this is, missed it yeah this is recently and so we haven't done her yet because we don't like doing ones that are too recent yeah Because you kind of have to let things percolate. And also, the fascinating thing about serial killers is that they are a a reflection and a fraction of the politics and society at the time. So you can't always step back from that if it's happened immediately. Mm. (laughs) So we're doing Burke and Hare, who were basically body snatchers who who then were selling the cadavers, ran out of graves Mm. to rob, so killed people. But it was because you could only donate bodies that had been hanged, hanged. or had uh, committed suicide yeah. and there was t- a medical school here so they just didn't have enough and then there was like a lo- non-legit medical school who was like yeah give finest bodies and we'll pay for them so it was just a result of the fact that the legislation had changed mm. it was called the the bloody law I think had been repealed so they couldn't just supply bodies blindly anymore so they- a black market started so every single serial killer is a product of their time like why they get away with it will be a product of the police system Mm -hmm. at the time so Jeffrey Dahmer was killing gay guys so no one cared it's gay business is what one of the policemen said when they found a kid naked, drugged in the street and he was like, he's my boyfriend and the kid was 13 and if they'd have checked Jeffrey Dahmer's background, he was on the sex offenders register for sexually assaulting that same boy's younger brother years ago. Mm. And sex workers, Colin Ireland knew that if you want to get away with things, you kill homeless people, sex workers, or gay people because nobody cares about mm-hmm. them or they see it as an occupational hazard. Whereas what happened with the Yorkshire Ripper is the first innocent in inverted commas person he killed, which was just a young schoolgirl. Yeah, there was outrage. But when he was killing sex workers, no one cared. Because they're like, oh well, that part to me is absolutely fascinating about police attitudes and tabloid attitudes and society's attitudes. And there's a suspected serial killer in Manchester at the moment. Yeah, the 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 pusher. Pusher. And so they found that about sixty, seventy bodies have turned up in the canals. Oh, fuck. Um, of guys, young guys, and they're going, oh, it's gay guys getting drunk and falling in the canal, and probably some of it is that, mm. but also it's, it's 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 a weird coincidence to me that it's gay guys. Because a lot of time, it'll be, oh, it's a, it was a sex game gone wrong when someone's been garroted you know, some gay guy. It's, uh, yeah, police attitudes are very slow to change, just like societies are, if we're being honest about it. Mm-hmm. if you, you know, I think if, there's more shock if there's a a 19-year-old law student found dead than a 19-year-old sex mm. worker found dead. yeah, yeah. So uh, things are very, very slow to change. I think it also, death is shocking at any time, but
3: like I say I haven't worked on a couple of stories that were like big murder stories yeah she wasn't a story that I worked on but she had the or her family certainly had and Christopher Jeffries had the misfortune Mm. that that story happened over Christmas oh yeah and that's already slow news time and it's the same with the sound killers which I did work on, was shocking because it was two girls and that was really unusual, yeah. but it also happened during Silly Season. So the entire world's media almost descends on this story God. and says, yeah. we've got something, whereas a, a murder that happens at a time when, you know, there's a, a race riot happening in America yeah. or they're threatening nuclear war. a well,
7: they- huge serial killer you won't have heard of, the Green River Killer, yeah. Gary Ridgway, and he was discovered about 9-11, yeah. wasn't he? So he'd been killing sex workers for absolutely years this mild-mannered yep. guy been getting away with it and no one has heard of him he's one of the most prolific serial killers in america because it happened and when, yeah 9 11 time a bit like mother 6/10. Teresa must have been like oh really And yeah. diana died like wow. come on
2: how many did she
7: i mean let's not get into that <laughs> some of these murders have a, a, a knock-on effect to legislation famous high-profile cases that you know you have like Megan's Law are a result of there's a few things that we've studied that then have changed we've studied we've Googled we've Googled we insomnia we've studied yeah. um, but then have had a knock-on effect to the law they've changed so Son of Sam Law was brought in because David Berkovich killed all these people and then was selling his memoirs and then that the law stepped in and it became international law that you cannot profit from crimes it's fascinating to see because if that had happened at a different time because it happened over the summer i guess when things are slow it might not have changed things so much because it it, to me it's like i loved history
2: and i think so much of serial killers oddly is about politics
1: yeah
2: there there is a real appetite for it though the public like love those stories Mm -hmm. what do you think is key in making people want to read about stuff that's nasty i think
8: it's natural to be interested in these kind of things because it should be so far removed from anything you do that it baffles you that's why i think the majority of people are interested in it like when i'm reading something i'm like what is going on well how why would you do that how does somebody get to that point where that's the crime they've committed because it's something that i could never do or something that i can't believe somebody would actually do I think that's the fascination.
3: I think as well there's a certain degree of, when you look at things like, so I mean say the Yorkshire River you think somebody's lived with that person somebody's worked mm. with that person and it does lead you to question how well do you ever mm, know people yeah. because these people have families they have friends they have colleagues yeah I haven't killed anyone Mickey sorry yeah. just a, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit actually. you get the gut reaction oh I always knew there was something wrong with yeah. him when I've knocked on doors and neighbours have said things like that oh yeah he's always weird he And they
7: said that about Christopher Jeffrey? yeah <laughs> well,
3: it's precisely what that says about society's attitude to single people yeah. is, is really shocking but there is something about the idea that these are just people in our mix.
7: Yeah. Well, it, what's is it um,
8: She Must Have Known, that was about... Yeah, that was written from the point of view that Rose West didn't know. But it's she an didn't interesting know. argument. As if, as if she knew about the rape and the sexual assaults, and obviously she got involved with that, but it was written from maybe she didn't know that he was murdering
7: people. I mean, it's bollocks. Yeah! <laughs> interesting, because you do bollocks. start to think, oh, maybe... Well, know, BTK's well, wife... Said one day, because these letters she just sent up, she went, "Oh God, you spell like BTK, and like that's such a weird thing." But you, would, of course, you wouldn't. Your husband, who is a pillar of the community, who's in the church, who's raised your kids, who's been a brilliant dad, what, it just wouldn't occur to you when you're in love with someone. Stephen King wrote a short story based on the what it is like to be a wife who oh, yeah. just suddenly finds out. Her husband has been murdering people. And it was inspired by BTK. And the family spoke out and said, can we just please not have... Because it's been made into a film, I think. Yeah. They're like, can oh we just... We've had enough. Can we be left alone? Yeah, that's another thing that I think is like... How much do they know? And also... But everyone has that. Everyone's been in a relationship where you see what you want to and your friends are like... Yeah. Mate, if you, if someone like mm. that spoke to me, like you yeah, would yeah. knock him out. And you you see what you got. Oh, no, he's stressed. Or it's this or... (laughs) my face is stupid you know like you do you you reconcile all this stuff so I think that we are very capable of turning a blind eye to horrendous things or refiling it so it's more reasonable because yeah Sonia Sutcliffe as well she didn't know Uh,
8: I don't think she she had schizophrenia and she She had enough going on she she she? wasn't very well so I don't think she had any comprehension of anything that was going on you're in bed and someone's out murdering at three in the morning comes home and the next day they just you're not going to you're not going to go particularly
7: if they
3: do a job where they yeah it's a long long driver, long driver of course
7: I think people are interested because well I think we get a different type of person I think some people are interested in sort of the salacious side of it and we're not, like, into crime no. scene photos. or no, no, And no. then we try and actually not describe too much what was done to people. And you always go, this
2: is a nasty bit. Are you, yeah. Do sort of yeah.
7: people. Yeah, because well, I think I'm hugely desensitised now to things, worryingly oh. so. Because I only realise it when people go, oh, I can't listen to your podcast before bed because I have nightmares. And also, like, we do have a sense of, I, I guess, well, empathy, I would hope, but, like, When you're reading about something horrible that's happened to a kid, it's so sad. Especially kids or, like... Mm. Because people target vulnerable people. So people with learning difficulties, people with no support network. There's something intrinsically sad about that. And the fact that they're being picked off by someone is... And then the police ignoring them is so sad. And I think that's what... If people like us, that's maybe what they like about it compared to the ones that are like, and then they did this. That's
8: what you want. It's, It's like, I don't understand why people... Sort of
7: want to look at crime scene
8: photograph. I don't understand why somebody would want to hear exactly what happened. All you need to know is the method in which someone's been murdered. Yeah. You don't need to know all the details. Is that when people watch videos of beheadings?
2: What's uh, wrong with
8: you? Can you just not do that? Yeah. It's. I think
2: you know what's happened. And also, like, s- it's been described, and you're going. But wait, wait, sorry, it, I just don't quite yeah. get this. There's yeah, like the head gone a So the head comes away from yeah. there.
8: What? I think as well. You know, sometimes. When somebody's been murdered in a horrific circumstance, that's the last moments of that person's life, and I think it's very disrespectful yeah. to be regurgitating facts about something yeah. horrible that's happened.
7: Well, because it is a, fu- I would hope it's a funny podcast, but the joke should always come back on. This is the thing. I think you can make horrific things funny, but the victim always has to not be the victim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the people that you're ribbing is the police, it's the circle, it's yeah. the people with power. It's not the dead sex worker. No it's it's us for not knowing something it's these people have been through enough and my hope is that someone whose family i guess they would never do it but someone whose family had been affected by it could listen to it and not feel like we had been mm. disrespectful that's like really important to us to yeah. be also as feminists to be like because it is women like it's women and marginalized people it's important to us to not be yeah. part of the narrative that Sex, was it, sex workers deserve what they get because a lot of the time when we do live shows we'll do fundraisers for them. Yep. there's a couple of charities in Manchester that support sex workers how do people listen to you where do they find you where are uh, you on Twitter when do you
3: do live shows
7: oh god you want to know everything live show tonight so you missed that uh, yeah <laughs> we're on uh, what are we Libsyn. on Lip, Libsyn and we're, we're on, on iTunes. iTunes yeah so all killer no filler and it's spelled like Killan. the cool way yeah Because no filler yeah oh, I know it sounds lame but it's because the other one was taken so was taken, it's yeah. not very us that but <laughs> and we're on Facebook and Twitter thank you so much for coming no worries Morris. it's
2: been
0: brilliant oh thanks thank for you. having us mate cheers bring it, bring it. question I'm not answering that Hello, this is Sarah Millican, and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. Um, I'm quite glad that my voice worked, because <laughs> I realise I haven't spoken to anybody all day yet. Um, oh, I have! I've talked to the animals. Oh, sorry. Uh, not like uh, <laughs> not like Dr. it, just the pets. I don't do strange animals. Um, that's, not, that's a lie as well. I say hello to all animals I ever see. Oh, well, that's good. That means that my voice always works. See anyway, this is totally beside the point. I'm so sorry. I'm going to answer two questions. We've had some cracking questions in, especially on Twitter. My favourite question on Facebook, uh, we put a post up on the standard issue Facebook page to say, "Have you got a question for Sarah Milligan?" And uh, my favourite question was, "Who was Sarah Milligan?" Uh, with a G. Uh, so. I'm going to say I don't know. I'm so sorry. I feel, like, I feel bad like this is a question, the first one that I've not been able to answer. I'm sure there are some wonderful women called Sarah Milligan, but I don't know who they are. I'm so sorry, uh, dick on Facebook. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. Uh, the questions that I love that I got are um, from Amanda Burstyn and Jane Turner, both on Twitter. Amanda Burstyn asks, What everyday niggle would you like to solve? Amanda, I fixed it. I've already solved it. Um, it's laces tying. I hate tying my laces. I don't mind like first thing or like when I go out, but I don't like tying them every four minutes. I was in Edinburgh recently and I had trainers on that I had to tie them three times in ten minutes, and I thought, I'm sure this time could be be put into better use. Maybe I don't know. Just you know, there's loads of chip shops. There's loads of chip shops. There must be something I could be doing this time that's better. Even just sitting on the texting that would be better use of the time. But luckily, I have a friend who's excellent, and she said to me, why don't you just get the stretchy laces? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about, but tell me more because it sounds intriguing. And she said, the stretchy laces, and they're made for like people who have sort of... Um, either maybe they're older or maybe people who've got gammy hands or I'm sure I'm not sure gammy is a medical term but it is in our house or for people who have um, sort of problems bending down and things like this so they're made so that you don't have to ever tie your laces but this implies that the rest of the world who don't have problems with hands or with bending down bloody love tying laces which is clearly bullshit so I think this is sort of thing that might take over the world. It will definitely shave off actual minutes of your day if you wear trainers or shoes with laces. They're stretchy. You you buy them on on the internet and they slot in, they tie off and they stretch as you put your foot in the shoe, they stretch as you get your foot out the shoe and you never tie a fucking lace ever again. I'm so sorry to swear, but I'm so adamant (laughs) that this is a life-changing thing. I'm telling all of my friends. So that's so I don't, I don't have any everyday nickels, Amanda Burston. I've fixed it. Uh, and the other question from Jane Turner: Why do old people wear beige? It's a really good question. I don't know that they do. Are you an old person, Jane Turner? Are you wearing beige? Is that the question? Why do I wear beige? Um, I think some people, not necessarily old people, wear beige because they eat beige food. It would explain why my husband regularly wears a brown jumper, because that's just—it's gravy heaven. He can have. He can wear that for four days and nobody would know. I mean, I would because I live with him and it fucking stinks. <laughs> um, I think old people should wear whatever the fuck they want. I don't know if they wear beige. Generally, if they do, it's maybe because that's all that's on offer. You know, if you wander around like Blue Harbor, it's not that many colours there, is there? I'm looking forward. I'm, see, I was going to say I'm looking forward to wearing whatever the hell I want, but maybe I should be doing that now, age forty-two. Well, you know what? You've given me something to think about, Jane, and you've made me look at pensioners more, and that can't be a bad thing, can it? Thank you both, Amanda and Jane, for your excellent questions, uh, and send us some more questions in. That would be awesome. Bye bye. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard issue UK using the hashtag smqt. Thank you.
4: Standard issue for all women.
8: You play ball
4: like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, the weekly dive bomb in the deep end of women's sport. And I don't mean that in the Richard Keys or Andy Gray sense of the expression. Moving swiftly on. Tremendous news uh, from Amsterdam, if you're English, less so if you're Scottish, as the former beat their northern neighbours to progress to the semi-finals of the European Hockey Championships on Tuesday. Giselle Ansley scored on her 100th international appearance, so well done to her. Tonight, because it's Tuesday, where I am, it's not where you are, obviously, because we haven't figured out how to time travel yet. England take on France in the Women's Rugby World Cup. That's the semi-finals, in fact. So if you're listening on Wednesday, you will now know how they fared. Alas, I cannot see into the future as previously discussed. If we make it through, we will play either New Zealand or the USA in the final on Saturday. And we absolutely whooped the US during the group stage, so fingers crossed for that. But for now, with the US Open getting underway next week, I was lucky enough to catch up with tennis legend, the former captain of Britain's women's fed cup team, ballroom dancer extraordinaire, tennis coach and author of a new tremendous autobiography, Knowing the Score. And she's got some kids you might have heard of. Judy Murray. Yeah, I know. So this interview was recorded, um, as I said, in Edinburgh at the Newtown Theatre and that was next to some sweaty socks uh, in someone's dressing room, not Judy's, I will hasten to add that. So forgive the occasional blast of action from the show that was going on downstairs at the time. Hope you enjoy. Judy, I wanted to talk to you about the work that you do in tennis coaching. You have been involved in tennis for a number of years now. What sort of change you've seen in the time that you've been involved and and particularly the change that you've seen in the women's game?
1: Well, I've been coaching for about 26 years now and I started out as a volunteer at our local club we um, moved back from Glasgow to Dunblane when just just before Andy was born. My kids are 15 months apart, and I rejoined the tennis club that I was a member of when I was a, a kid, and discovered that you know there were still no coaches there, nobody really making anything happen for the junior players, and, and I started out as a you know as a volunteer. So when I started out in coaching. I wasn't stepping on anybody's toes because there just weren't any coaches in the area. And I think that the difference between now and then starting out is that there are many more people earning a living from coaching tennis than there there ever were before. But I do feel that we have kind of a bit gone to the other extreme, that there are many, many more kids and adults having coaching, but there are less playing the game, there are less playing competitively. I feel like we've become a like a nation of lesson takers, that kids get programmed into activity from a young age and don't play as freely or naturally. When I was young, we used to go and spend every Saturday more or less down at the tennis courts and you'd go down with your packed lunch on your bike and you'd play everybody and anybody, you'd make up your own scores, your own handicap systems and you learned how to play the game by playing the game. Nowadays I think uh, because there are many more coaches attached to clubs who make a living from obviously from giving lessons that there are many more lessons given and not enough free play and tennis in particular is a real thinking sport you know you you have to solve problems make decisions all the time every time you you hit a ball because it's a combat sport and nowadays I think that the things that are trendy for kids to play with tend to be sitting down in front of a screen and the only thing that gets exercise is your thumbs so we have less coordinated kids coming into to sport.
4: Did it feel like quite a, a lonely place for a woman back then? Does it now is it do you feel like you've seen a lot of change?
1: Uh, no I don't feel I've seen a lot of change. Um, I think there is more talk about it in the yeah. last few years mm-hmm. you know you know people raising more awareness of it yeah. but you don't make a change like that. Quickly, you need to make your sport um, attractive to women to come into even at entry level coaching. Mm-hmm. And we certainly in, in in the UK are not getting enough women considering it as a career path. And it, I think a lot of it is linked to you know if you if you can see it, you can be it. So if you saw a lot more female PE teachers, if you saw a lot more female tennis coaches, more young girls might consider it as. A career but you don't if you don't see that many female tennis coaches making a successful living out of it you may never consider that as a potential career so we this is why we need the career pathway so I think there's a lot of groundwork that needs to go in first but we need to make it a lot more welcoming welcoming and one of the things I think that we do need is women only coach qualifications uh, or coach development opportunities because often when I know that when I did my last coaching qualification, which was called the Performance Coach Award, and it was, it was many years ago, it was in 1994 to 95. it was a one-year course. It was a brand new course, and it was the highest qualification that the LTA had at the time. And there were twenty spaces on it, and eighteen meant to w- went to men, and two went to women and I was fortunate to get one of those one of those two slots but you know I was told by one of the tutors on the first training re- workshop that I went to that I was very lucky to be there, and um, that a lot of men who had applied for it hadn't hadn't got places on it, and that actually one uh, of the men had registered a formal complaint, and that he had said quote what on earth could she offer to performance tennis when she has two kids, and because this guy shared this with me, I was feeling terrible. you know I was thinking i shouldn 't be here, not good enough it shouldn 't be and then and then I came to the common sense thing and said i 'm here i 'm here i 'm on it, and I have to make the most of it, but it was my first sort of real kind of brush with sexism Mm -hmm. and understanding that the whole thing of being a woman and you should be at home with kids is that's what many guys think and certainly oh, yeah, and and, and, and it, it is it is still it yeah. is still the case so I don't think there has been very much change but I feel a change coming but we do all need to work together we need to make our, our presence felt, we need to make our voices heard and we need to stick together because together we can make a lot more noise than people trying to fight their own individual battles in their own locations so big believer in bringing people together which is really why I, I created the She Rallies program for the LTA, which we launched in February, and it had three strands to it. Uh, the first was to create a women-only conference, which we did in Birmingham, a one-day conference. We had seven female speakers, really inspirational female speakers, telling their their stories or their areas of expertise as it relates to women's sport or women in sport. And then we appointed 26 part-time ambassadors, all women, uh, across the eight tennis regions of the UK. And I trained them up over a, a weekend uh, to deliver four different topics and so this is for all girl and all women activity. Part of it is driven towards increasing participation and improving retention because I believe that if we had more female coaches, we would retain more girls in sport, particularly when they're going through the high school years, because women much better understand how girls tick and the world in which they operate. So they know much better how to communicate with them, what sort of content, the importance of the social side, the importance of praise and making them feel good about themselves. The the two things go together, so it's improvement in participation increase in re- retention, and building a bigger and stronger female workforce. So these 26 ambassadors deliver any combination of these four topics across the 12-month period in their regions. So they basically creating their own army. So the 26 ambassadors are my army, and then they create their own armies. So it can be mums, parents, teachers, students, youth leaders, club members... Because we have to recognise that we will not quickly, significantly increase the number of female coaches by pushing them through formal qualifications. We have to get them in, give them a little bit of training, let them have a little go at it, work alongside another coach and you slowly nurture them and build the confidence and the interest and the passion to help them perhaps to go on and do a qualification. And the third prong of it was to help the male coaches, because we have just over 80% of our coaches, tennis coaches are men, so if we can help them to understand better how to work more effectively with girls in terms of the way that they communicate, the way that they create content, um, the way that they make their presence felt, etc., then we can help them to improve the, the attraction and retention of, of girls in sport as well. So it's been so successful in those first six months that the LTA have committed to adding another 30 ambassador so by the end of this year we'll have 56 yeah wow. it took me about four years to persuade them that we needed to have a female specific strand of our development strategy now that we've got it we're up and running you can see the effect you know immediately and now there's been you know increased investment which is fantastic
4: it's sort of impossible not to mention that you are of course the, the mother of two tennis players who have been ranked world number one in their in their respective events so uh, Jamie in the mixed doubles and and of course Andy in the in the men's singles and you actually coached them when they were young during the Olympics last year a woman had just won one of the swimming races and I think an American commentator sort of turned and pointed out her husband and said something like, that's the man to whom she owes everything. And I just wondered, do you feel like you get the credit you deserve for being a, a female coach?
1: I think you're, you're very much in a minority, whatever sport you, you work in, uh, as a female coach. And I think that one of the biggest eye-openers for me when I became the Fed Cup captain, which is the British women's team, was that when I started to travel with some of our women players on the WTA tour that the bulk of the coaches, even on the women's tour, are, are men. There's hardly any female coaches around, so it, it didn't take me long to understand that there really isn't a career pathway for for women. Obviously, the life of being a, a touring coach doesn't always suit women if they are the ones who are looking after a family which is, is, is the way that tradition uh, has it and taking a big career break like that and then coming back it is, it's not so easy to do the 30 weeks a year on the road if you're looking after a family as well. I think that when Andy took on Amelie Maresmo as his coach a few years ago and it caused a huge amount of interest, a lot of surprise in some quarters. Mm -hmm. But for him, he spoke out very clearly about why she was the right person for him at that stage of his career, and that it was nothing to do with gender. It was entirely to do with personality, fit, skill set, and experience. And that created a a lot of talking point in the media. And as a result of that, it raised the profile of female coaches. It, It raised this whole thing about why shouldn't women work at the top of any sport there is no reason why they shouldn't but it also led to quite a few of the top women players taking on ex women players in coaching or consultancy type roles so i mean that had a big effect but you you kind of need something that big to really draw really draw attention to it but i think that this summer we've had a great summer of success in women's sport you know whether that was joanna conta making the semis at wimbledon or whether it was the england women's cricket the lionesses the hockey ladies uh, last year in in rio there's a huge buzz i think a huge groundswell around women in sport and it is the time to for us all to really work together and take advantage of that really raise the profile in order to get more women and girls taking up sport getting involved in sport
4: going back to the point you made before about amelie maresmo becoming andy's coach and there being a lot of chat about that andy gets a lot of plaudits in the media for being something of a feminist you know he pulls people up if he feels that they've not acknowledged the achievements of female players for example
1: is that something that you try to instill in them It wasn't something I went out of my way to do. I mean, we're all products of our environment. They are used to me being around. I work hard. I've always worked hard. And I think that sets a good example to your kids, that I'm still out there working really hard for my sport. I still love my sport. And every guy's got a mum. I'm very proud of the of them, that they enjoy watching women's tennis, they enjoy watching men's tennis, they completely study their sport, and it's not just the men's side of the game. So if you ask them a question about any of the female players, Andy in particular, well, he could tell you all sorts of things about the women players, but very few of the male players, I would imagine, would be able to do that. But he is uh, such a student of the game. But, but it, it helps enormously when a, a world-famous name... In male sport speaks out about female sport and female coaches it's enormous because it's hard to get that kind of media attention when women speak out about it but like i said before i i do feel there is a bit of a change coming i, I, I really do so fingers crossed so we've got the us
4: open is about to start have you got any hot tips on who we should be looking out for in the us open
1: hey. You know, it's a tricky one on the women's side. I mean, I think it's an, a nice problem to have in that I noticed that Sharapova's been given a wild card yes. into the main draw. <laughs> she hasn't played very much since she came back. She's she's had quite a few injuries. But she will. she's box office. You know, that will bring crowds in. People will want to see her. And she's such a great competitor. You can never never write her off. But in the absence of Serena Williams, there's really probably any one of about 20 women who could win that title. It's very very open I think Meguruutha who won in Wimbledon thinks sh- she has a chance if, sh- if she's playing well Simona Halep has a chance Joanna Conta has a chance of course you know I I think there's I think there's a number of them and and that makes it interesting. I think Wimbledon this year on the women's side was very interesting because nobody really knew what was going to happen. It was great British interest because of the success of of Conta as well. So yeah, I think it's um I think it's it's quite open. I mean there's a, a good young um American player who started to come through called CeCe Bellis. She's young, like 18 or so. I think she's worth sort of keeping an eye on. She, I, she's not going to win it, I don't think, at this stage, but she, she's quite... I like watching the young ones coming through and, and seeing maybe where she is in sort of another two or three years' time, but she, she could be a contender a little bit further down the line, I think.
4: Thanks so much, Judy. Um, I, I will just say that that coach who complained... Back in the day when you got one of the one of the places on the course. I bet he feels pretty silly now. <laughs> <laughs> so th- uh, thank you ever so much for joining us, Judy. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Uh, thank you. That's all from this week's Journey Off the Blocks. The full interview with Judy is too long for this here podcast, but keep your ears peeled for the full shebang on this week's Sunday Chops, where I talk to Judy more about what she's doing to get more girls into sport, the challenges facing women's sport and how to raise a tennis pro. Welcome to Dunleavy
2: Good Disney. What Disney did you do this week, Dunleavy?
3: This week I watched 1995's Pocahontas, which I had never seen before. Have you guys seen it?
4: I have seen it, and for a long time I thought it was about a man from Harwich,
3: because... (laughs) I don't know why I find that funny, but... oh no, fair fair enough, but...
4: uh, Because Disney, that wasn't his usual stopping (laughs) bird. There's a little factory here, the, uh, the Mayflower, you know, the one with the Pilgrim Fathers and that. That boat is from Harwich, and it was captained by a Harwich man called, I think, Christopher Jones. And so for a long time I thought Christopher Jones was John Smith. I think purely on the basis that they both had really fucking dull names and <laughs> been to the new world and that. Traditionally
3: English names, aren't they? Let's so call them the generic names. Generic names.
4: <laughs> but
2: yes, I have seen it. I don't think I have seen it because 1995, I was possibly a little bit old to be watching Disney films by this point, so I missed it. But I have started to watch it for the sake of this podcast and like abandoned it halfway through. But I don't want to... I don't wanna do any spoilers, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't wanna yeah. prejudice list. My mum did used to call me Pocahontas because I Cause um Native American a, heritage. She told me that Michaela was a what Native I American know. name, right? And I believed her for ages and it's not, it's just a just the girls' version of Michael. Um, but because I used to, I have long dark hair and I used to wear it in plaits.
3: But this is like my granddad who was Another the daughter. world's greatest bullshitter and we loved him. And he made ninety five percent of his stories up. He told me almost every story we had We have relatives in America. He used to go there, and almost every story that he told us involved him meeting um, which he, which he rather um, unpolitically correctly called an Indian. Uh, who had told him a story. There was even a card trick that he had that involved him meeting an Indian.
2: But please, please God. I can I can
3: tell this tell story. This my favorite my, my, story ever. Uh, my well, my granddad once told me that um we were originally called Odon Leaving. Uh his dad sold it for a pig. And my my dad died recently. I was talking about, you know, nostalgic things with my brother who I you know, I'm forty three, my brother's thirty four. And I said it was like when when granddad's told a story about the O for a pig and he said that's not true and I was like of course I know it's not true and he said no he lost it in a poker game. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, um, uh, this, this story did uh, generate Dawn Porter when she married Chris O'Dowd took his O uh, which isn't a euphemism so she became Dawn O'Porter Porter. And I said with the name Mickey Noonan, if I ever married an Irishman, I would be Mickey O. Noonan, which could possibly the most, be the most Irish name True, ever. Yeah. Irish. I would just like to say that I have re-watched it
4: for the purposes of this recording and, again, without prejudice. Did you get all the way through? Yeah, I did. I, in two, two sittings, admittedly. But, yeah, I did watch the whole thing. You to
2: scream into a sheet
4: cake
3: for a <laughs> Do you think we could just sum it up with I have views? Yeah.
4: yeah, I, I We all do. My views were very different this time around to
2: 13-year-old Gen Yeah. Not that she wasn't woke then.
4: No. I was obviously very woke my whole
2: life. Hannah, did you like it?
3: (sighs) Okay, so when I said I was going to watch all the Disney films, you know, it seemed like a lark you know, a way to fill 15 minutes without actually having to think of another thing to do to fill 15 don't, minutes. Don't give away our secrets. Yeah, I did, I did have this fear at the back of my mind that I might eventually start to go mad and that this would deteriorate into a weekly diatribe about how shit the films are that we're putting into our kids' eyeballs. And to be honest, I actually think I've done a pretty good job of staying positive in the last few
2: weeks. You've not run into any traffic, to my knowledge.
3: But this film is shit. (laughs) Well, actually, you know what? It's not shit. You know, it's pretty po-faced and it's humourless and it's animated well enough and the songs aren't as appalling as, or some other films, which should remain nameless. But the idea behind it and the message that it sends out are absolutely toxic. It made me angry watching it. It made me angry writing this. It's making me angry just saying this. It's... I've encountered things that were racist in films before when we've done, done maybe Does Disney. I've always said, you know, maybe I'm not the best person to talk about this because I'm sure there are way better analyses than anything I could say about, like, what Aladdin says about the Arab world, for example. And... I'm pretty sure there is some cracking writing about Pocahontas out there too, but I, I can't really do that here because a) there is nothing else that's worth talking about in this film apart from how terribly racist it is, and also you know I'm a white British woman, but I actually do quite know quite a lot about this subject matter. I've I've been to Jamestown. I actually went where Pocahontas I went to Jamestown quite recently. I've read a shitload about it, and um, it's absolutely appalling. This was that your thought, Jen? Um,
4: yeah, I mean it wasn't the. Uh wasn't how i remembered it being no um there's this thing right so just like from the outset you know how a disney character presents right they've sort of got like they are who they are but they're sort of presenting they have a fundamental character flaw her character flaw apparently is that she's just so free-spirited
3: yeah that's probably it i I think what, what makes me so annoyed about this like unflushable turd of a film is that it's made with the glib confidence of white people who think that they are not being racist
2: it was absolutely praised when it came out for being sympathetic and taking into account everything and trying to also
3: sort of atone and it's people who think that they deserve like a pat on the back for being like so totally not racist it's It's like when you see middle class white bloggers saying shit like I don't see colour and you think, well, bully for fucking you, mate, you're not a policeman. And while policemen still see colour, yeah.
4: So there were, there were things about it, as, uh, initially I was like, so her character was basically like, she just said free spirited, man, because that's obviously how, the, you know, all, all Native Americans are just so fucking yeah. free spirited. And what about the spirits? Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
5: I've got
3: to say, obviously, this is a far crime from the westerns where they just stuck a load of feathers on like some Mexican dude. And said, "Speak gibberish." Voila, the bad guys. But a Pokemon just does it. Casts Native American actors, including Russell Means. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's pretty well known as a Native American activist. Is that dad? Oh, that he plays her dad. Well, On the other I'm hand, good. that's
2: well good. Oh, do you fancy? Yeah, it? I thought a dad was fit. Can
3: we get through Sorry. one of these without somebody talking about who they want to fuck?
2: No, I just think he's fit.
3: Okay. I mean, mean, there's
2: going to be pragmatic stuff into fucking a cartoon. Yeah, Yeah. anyway. I like his nose. Because why the fuck has she got a button nose?
3: On Your Land, it also stars Mel Gibson, who is a well-known racist.
2: They did cast him as someone who's a bit racist. Yeah, but no, see,
3: this is... Okay, so the film is clearly at pains to point out. In fact, it goes as far as to base a whole song on it that it's an open question as to who the savages actually are here. Is it, you know, the people who who were here and we have traditionally associated with being savage, or was it the British who turned up? Right? But I actually don't think that that is an open question. I think it's pretty fucking clear which side was in the right here. Yeah. And by essentially reducing Pocahontas' story to, so like, Romeo and Juliet by the sea, it creates this idea that it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. Which I think we can all agree is some sort of fetid, stinking lie. It's
4: bullshit, mate. I see what they were trying to do with that song. I do see what they were trying to do, but they have wronged Is that with the one on up. the ship?
3: No, this, no. Is, this, is, this is, I think you abandoned no, ship, literally, by right this point. Can I just point
2: yeah. out that Disney has made it so that I will never set foot on a ship ever yeah. again? Because they all go through some horrible
3: turns. Don't get me wrong, it's like not actually just Disney who's fucked this up. Recently, uh, Terence Malick, who, if you, you love him, I love love love. If you've read anything by I me, mean, I always shoehorn uh, Terence Malick references uh, He made
2: his face right now.
3: <laughs> He made the same story, Pokemon to story, in 2005 in the New World, um, and he does make a lot of the same mistakes that Disney makes here. In his defence, Terence Malick is a man who makes films that, that specifically focus on the relationship between man and the natural world. He's not trying to put bums on seats. If he was trying to put bums on seats, he would never have made to the wonder. Even Kevin Costner, who appeared to have the greatest of intentions when he made Dances with Wolves, eventually went on to make a film about how a white man teaches the Lakota to be better at being the Lakota.
2: Seems misguided. Mm. Yeah.
3: But what Costner did when the film was a success was he took some of the money he made from it and he funded a museum in South Dakota, which I've actually been to, which explains about how the wholesale slaughter of bison by Western settlers, the impact that that had on Native American tribes. You know, he didn't automatically try and sell me a pencil case with two socks on. Although, to be fair, I probably would have bought it. (laughs) Have you never seen dances with Wolves?
2: No, although the, I mean, I'd love to dance with a wolf. Does he do some dancing no. with actual wolves? No. No, he I doesn't. I feel like no. i a, a dozen. He doesn't. Him.
3: And Two Socks is a wolf that he, oh, yeah. that is the wolf that oh. he right. that he makes friends with. Are uh, the wolves.
2: wolves actual wolves? Yes. Oh, okay, good.
3: Yes, that's where he gets his name because they watch him and he has been dancing with wolves.
2: When you say dancing with wolves, is it yeah. a waltz, a tango, kind of dance... Just
3: around, around. not hanging yeah. around with oh, just, wolves, just, just, just hanging out, out with wolves. wolves, yeah, and two socks is kind of like uh, the only way I can describe two socks is he's kind of like Wilson in castaway <laughs> in that he becomes something that is way more central than perhaps he would have been were he just like a wolf. It's about like isolation and how close you get to he's not an inanimate object, obviously
2: he's two a wolf. socks
3: because he's a wolf, but yeah. But I did wonder whether this was like, maybe that this whole thing is about Disney telling America what it wants to hear. Because there is a... America has never quite got good with itself about how it's treated its native people. So this is maybe a populist opinion There of are it. still rumblings, and rightly so. Well, exactly. I mean, it, 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 like in this film, the bad guys are British.
2: Always. Very British. Well... Even Mel Gibson's British. That's how British they are. Yeah. yeah.
3: Which is obviously historically accurate, I mean, I'm not going to deny, but it's also, it also adds a certain distance between the viewer and the uncomfortable fact that America systematically destroyed the lives of hundreds of tribes and continues to treat its native people like their second class citizens. I mean, the British didn't pass the Indian Removal Act in 1830, that was Americans. They didn't massacre women and children at wounded knee, that was Americans. They're not a standing rock. Today, that is Americans.
4: We did do some terrible shit. Oh but no, we're cunts, but we're cunts for history to all people.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. we're equal opportunity cunts. <laughs> but we were the we were the genesis of the cuntiness. Yeah, <laughs> America took that ball and ran with it for well up until still running. Yesterday, exactly. So still running. If we look at like the portrayal of the Potan Nation here, they are the tribe that you're talking about. And I did some check in online before I wrote this and. Lo and behold, they're not happy with Pocahontas either. Oh, I read about this as well. But they did they did actually, they were nice enough to say they didn't hold it against the Native American actors who were in it because it's hard enough to get work when you're a Native American actor, which is a whole different story in itself. One of the criticisms that's always gone on about, you know, air quotes, Indians and the way they're portrayed is that they're portrayed as savages. But, you know, some people do go the other way and they portrayed the sort of the crystals and wind chimes people the people you know they have this hippie dippy it's like so free spirited face exactly and that's i think what you were getting at that sort of the peace loving child of the earth narrative which is actually also pretty misjudged because these people were warriors not fucking hobbits <laughs> and i'm a massive king of the hill fan which you know and if you're listening maybe you don't but it has a native american character john Redcorn. Whenever he speaks, his hair starts blowing around in the wind. It does. And the wistful music plays. And I always assumed that that was like a nod to that fucking dream catcher peddling bullshit image. But
2: it turns out it's not. It's what happens in Pocahontas. She is constantly in some sort of shampoo art. There's a lot of girls aloud video. There's a lot of wind machine going
4: on. Oh, Have you yeah. ever
2: seen a wind machine?
4: Yeah, and, and a lot of like leaves Does there around they have wind machines well.
2: in the 1600s? Just the wind gonna, mate.
4: I'm gonna guess. Them. Oh, the wind. Just the wind, but there's Q-t, a lot of it around her all the time. She's, she's,
2: so free spirited she's so free-spirited babes It's a mum She's so free-spirited babes She gets all like Kind of slightly neon Butterflies And leaves floating Yes, yeah, But that's well. the spirit Of a dead mum Because this is Disney film So her mum has well, to be mom dead Her mum has to be
3: dead Actually To be fair Conveniently Um Pocahontas' mum Was actually dead Okay so that's A historical accuracy yeah, And it is one of the few Historical accuracies You will find in this film and, and
2: the wind
0: machine
3: And that's the other Massive problem About this film Because it's so Historically inaccurate It doesn't just compound the racism, it also throws in a bit of sexism. Yeah. Uh, Just just to be clear, if you don't know the history behind this, Pocahontas is a real person. John Smith is a real person. That's a delicious thing. Not from Harrod. The centrepiece of the film where Pocahontas throws her body over John Smith to save him from being executed is true. And I use true in a kind of... Because John Smith claimed it happened in his autobiography, but he did make other claims that were very similar about other people at different times. Did
2: so, he also make a film where he was William Wallace? <laughs> you, can,
3: you can take it with a with a pinch of salt. And actually, to be fair, America has a long tradition of people exaggerating their life stories in order to become legend. Lying.
7: Um, it's called like Well,
3: including one of my favourite people from history, Martha Cameron, better known as Calamity Jane, did that. She's That's...
2: awesome. She's loud.
3: Exactly. But so much of the rest of the story is fabricated. You kind of wonder why Disney bothered to tell this air uh, quotes mm. true story. It's
2: romantic, Hannah.
3: There's a bit in the film where Pocahontas' dad says, "My daughter speaks with a wisdom beyond her years." Well, no shit, mate. She was eleven when they met
2: she's she's fully formed for an 11 year old yeah she's got she's got junk in the trunk hasn't she she's got uh, everywhere yeah. now well, you, only in a disney way like yeah. i mean hourglass figure tiny yeah. waist button nose.
3: you know how i feel about artistic license i've been quite clear on that but this is this is just this is like beyond the pale. using the life of a woman to sell an image of the new world that isn't real is offensive and using it to make money to sell little girls' dress-up costumes is offensive. I mean, shit me, there's, a, there's few enough films made about women's lives as it is without this one being entirely fabricated and sold with the idea that it's a true story. Actually, it made me
5: want to claw
3: at my face. And not least because the film ends, Jen, Jen stuck it out to the end, it ends with Pocahontas, this liberated woman, She's standing on a cliff. That's exactly what she's doing. They're I'm all doing the here, and right? I don't know what they're doing. And she's waving John Smith back to England and making friends with the British people and she's converted the British people to her cause, right? She's
2: looking very proud. Yeah. She does it. And that's
3: the cause yeah. of not being a cut. Right. And that's how the film ends. I well, did not
2: learn that lesson.
3: Exactly. And that's what we're letting little girls and little boys, to be fair, believe is what happened in this story. When the truth is... She was kidnapped, she was held prisoner by the British, and she was only released when she married another British man, not John Smith, a man called John Rolfe, and many people believe that that was actually a condition of her release, was that she married him. But even if it wasn't, it's a pretty great example of Stockholm Syndrome, and we know from Beauty and the Beast that Disney likes a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. And history's left a long record of how Rolfe felt about his wife, but surprise, surprise, nothing about how she felt about the marriage. What we do know is that, maybe willingly, maybe not, she converts to Christianity, she takes a British name, she gets dragged across the Atlantic to be paraded round British society.
2: It's like a freak show, right? She was, like a right? Show.
3: As an example of what you can do, you can tame a heathen, and then she dies of one of one of our hideous diseases that she's never had any contact with, right? Age 21.
4: In Graves' fucking End, mate. In Graves' there End. There you she go. Has a graves' End. How sad is that? It's like
3: me, um. So, in conclusion, fuck you, Disney, and all we say, really.
4: I would also just like to add to that, to the damning indictment against this film, is that um, she has a very literal style of singing. <laughs> that just me
2: around me. the riverbend? What's she, she doing like, at that point? I can't even... Well, I she's she's blowing
4: her hair. She's, she's canoeing she's, around the riverbend She's a fucking being really free spirit, isn't it? And then basically she just chats a lot in a sort of
2: song-type way and it reminds me a lot of
4: Craig David, actually
2: Really? Yeah um, she was captured by a man on Wednesday. They were making love by Thursday. On Sunday, she was dead in Kent. Yeah. Quite, <laughs> wow. I mean, Quite. that's a terrible one. <laughs> that's the director's cut of Craig David's songs. Um, also, doesn't her best mate grass her up? So you can never trust a woman. Mm,
3: yes, yeah, she does. But there's also, like, there, I mean, it does actually go full Romeo and Juliet because they have mm. she has a character whose name I can't remember who was basically. Oh, no, what's no, the guy that's. is
4: man. Yeah, he but, meant to marry
3: yeah him. but he he basically dies in a very Romeo yeah, and Juliet way. Bleeds. Yeah.
4: They two
2: people get shot and no one believes. Disney begs He like dies in front of everyone and he doesn't believe. It's because the chief doesn't know what to do with this kind of injury. That happens,
4: right?
5: Yeah,
2: Yeah. But about at the point that he
4: gets shot by Christian Bale. What the f- Yeah. Yeah,
2: he yeah, talks about
3: that. Christian, Christian Bale. Bale. Christian Bale is also in the new world. He is John Rolfe in the new world. Fun fact.
2: Oh, that is a fun fact. Billy Connolly's in it. Is that actually Billy? Con- it's Billy Connolly. Connolly. Mm-hmm. I looked it up. It's it's got all the stars. It's got all the moving stars. Yeah, yeah, but
4: yeah.
2: I have mentioned it a couple of times before, and, but her nose, right? She has got like the Disney button nose. Yeah. The fucking ski slope disappears when she's face on nose. Like Disney won't admit that they're heroin was actually a Native American. She yeah. looks very Westerner.
3: But they were very excited by the idea that the hero was a Native American. It, honestly, the the amount of self-congratulatory bullshit that is in this film is absolutely horrific. The, what they have done essentially is they have created the idea of a noble savage and they think that creating the idea of a noble savage is a good thing. Whereas creating the idea of a noble savage is just as racist. I remember it being racist when
4: I was 12 or 13 or whenever I originally watched it. Um, but watching it again, it is uncomfortable viewing. And the worst thing about it is you know, as you say, Hannah, like you know it has been made by people who think they're being super fucking woke. And it's just... Uh.
2: Even the animals. like So there's Miko, who's a raccoon. Mm-hmm. And is it Deep, the, the hummingbird character? Yeah, I, well, they're actually Native American spirits that the Disney animators have made characters and when I was doing my little bit of research about this, because, guys, we do do some research, (laughs) um, the Native Americans were really pissed off that they'd done that, and that's why they're there to guide her and to help her, and they, like, cause mischief, but also save her. No,
3: they're there to sell pencil sharpeners, is what they're there for. And to
2: sell pencil sharpeners, which is is basically all the... um, Americans left the Native Americans with was pencil sharpness.
3: It does beg the question and go back to dances with balls right. whether or not white people are the best people to tell non-white people's histories, and possibly I mean, the I answer no. is no. possibly the answer is no.
2: But yet they keep doing it. Yeah. Well.
3: But it's even more offensive with Disney because, Disney, like I say, I don't. I do think when you look at something like. Dances with Wolves, and you think that was made with the best intentions. It wasn't made to make a shitload of money and to merchandise a load of stuff to to children and to sell an image to children. That I is, bought, I bought a wolf. Did you?
2: Yeah. Okay. I haven't even seen it, but I bought a wolf. I was sold a wolf.
3: From Pocahontas?
2: No, from Dances with Wolves. Pocahontas, Dunleavy. What score are we giving it?
3: I'm giving it nothing. Oh. I'm giving it nothing out of nothing.
2: Oh, wow. There's not even a category. No, I can't be
3: fucked to think of something. It doesn't deserve it. It's getting no, no out of no.
2: No out of no?
3: It's getting up. Please don't make your children watch this. It is absolutely terrible. It, just as an aside, there's something about her costume. And then there's a dog in it. There's like a pug. And they both appear to have the same necklace in it.
2: Percy the pug.
3: And that is enough to, like, to just, just undermine how... Do not buy your kid a poke costume. Do not buy your child a, Do not make them watch this film. It is shit.
4: That's it from this week's Standard Issue Podzine, which was predominantly recorded in my flat in that London. Currently, I'm recording this in my bedroom, so you might hear a loud blast of turkish music or a bus as i sit here in my gym kit not having washed yet today tell that to the daily mail anyway next week we're back with a gig cast we've got loads of shows coming up september show in london is sold out but we do still have a few tickets left for our shows in cheltenham and leamington spa and we've got some cracking guests at those. Emma Sams, Ray Earl, Susan Cowman. they're all in Cheltenham. Joe Enright, Sally Lindsay will be at Leamington Spa and of course our Sarah. We're back in London on October the 5th with Scarlett Moffat and Rebecca Front, which is going to be crazy good. Our music was composed and recorded by Barry Hilton, all rights reserved. We have got an archive full to brimming with brilliant articles over at www.standardissuemagazine.com and Sarah's got a whole third of her website devoted to us. You'll find that at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard issue. We'd love to hear from you and you can write to us at mailbag at standardissuemagazine.com. You can follow us on Twitter at standardissueuk and you can find us on Facebook or Indeed instagram yeah all of our podcasts pod zines and gig casts are available on itunes and podomatic we would love it if you would rate and review us please and five out of five seems like a decent shout to me anyway all that remains for me to say is stay frosty champs